Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. Today's guest is Timmy Conley. Timmy Conley is the guitar player and singer in the Athens band Timmy Conley and the Wonderland Rangers. Before that, he was in the band Kite to the Moon, and before that, he was in the much-beloved Athens band The Fuzzy Sprouts. Timmy is also the founder of the week-long Bacchanalian Halloween party in Athens that we call the Wild Rumpus. The Wild Rumpus is a series of shows and events that culminates in an enormous Halloween parade that just snakes through the streets of Athens and it's this amazing party if you've never been to it you should come next year it's really worth the time to come see this amazing spectacle Timmy's also a fine art painter and he's someone I've known for many years and I'm I'm tremendously fond of if this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, Crash and Ride is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if we could have open and honest conversations among musicians about the things we've been through, what it was like, what happened, what we're like now, we could start to get better because we could see our own suffering and the suffering of others, and we could talk about what we did to get better. As I've said many times on this program and others, no one is going to take care of us but us. And i got to say... Uh, I think it's helping. I get emails all the time from listeners who say things like, well, I didn't know about this like ketamine nasal spray, and I went and talked to my doctor, and he gave it to me, and I don't want to kill myself anymore. We talked about ketamine as a treatment for people who are therapy and drug-resistant and suffering from depression on episode 10. That was last spring. I've heard a lot of great things from people who heard that episode and went and got some help. And I've heard people say, well, I heard episode number one and realized I wasn't the only person in the world who was struggling with obsessive anxiety. So that's what we're here to do. We're here to be a peer group and a support group for musicians and help each other out. And also, you know, I don't talk about this a lot, but like I feel like mental health stuff is something we've been sort of trained not to talk about, especially uh, in the professional setting. Uh, and I and I feel like a lot of that stigma is fading. But just this week, I heard the story. I was a friend of mine who's a, a session musician, and he had worked with um, some other people, you know, in professional capacity. And he was going through some shit, and he tried to keep it on the DL and be professional about it. But sometimes things kind of creep out. And apparently, like, they've been walking around the town where they live talking shit. Like, I think that guy's emotionally unstable. Like, hey, first of all, number one, like, fuck you. Like, if this whole thing of other people having feelings is is hard for you, I got a suspicion that maybe your music isn't that like insightful or deep. So maybe go be a praise and worship director or something. Get the fuck out of music. And and second of all, like if we can't talk about what we're going through, then we're gonna have a lot of conversations at wakes and funerals. So those of you who were going through stuff, talk about it. Talk about it to people like me who you can trust. Find your peer group and, and, and don't bottle that shit up. And if, like I said, if you're some normie who thought maybe getting a cowboy hat and a guitar would make you an Americana writer, like, it, but people having feelings is hard for you, um, fuck off. I'm really, I'm not apologetic about my contempt for people who shame people for having uh, honest conversations about mental health. Seriously, I will fight you. Okay, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, Crash and Ride is brought to you in part by Greer Amplification. Greer Amp spills the best boutique effects pedals available. If you're looking for an overdrive, boost, fuzz, compressor, or tremolo that is rugged, road-tested, and at home, on stage, in the studio, or in your living room, Greer has a pedal for you. Nick and his staff strive to build the best products around with the best tone you've ever heard. They believe in their products, and they stand behind them, too, backing each one up with a lifetime warranty to the original owner. Each Greer Amp's product is hand-built in Athens, Georgia, USA. Go to www.greeramps.com or visit your favorite music retailer today. 
You know, I'm sure some of you are thinking, man, you should name names. You should talk about whoever is talking shit about someone who had an episode of depression on the road. But my buddy wouldn't tell me who it was. Believe me, I would name names and shame people for being shitty like that. But my buddy knew I'd do it, and he wouldn't tell me. Okay. Crash and Ride is also brought to you in part by Jittery Joe's, a local coffee roaster based in Athens, Georgia. They have an espresso blend named after the podcast. You can get Crash and Ride espresso, whole bean, or ground off our website at crashandridepodcast.com slash store. We also have t-shirts there that help us pay for the expenses of having a podcast. We have blue and black t-shirts that have the Loud Guitar Save Lives slogan on them with the big Crash and Ride logo. Got them in women's sizes and men's sizes. They look great. They feel great. They're good t-shirts. They're only 20 bucks. So go to crashandridepodcast.com slash store. All right, so today's guest is Timmy Conley. Timmy's a really sweet guy. He's been around Athens since about 1991 or two. We talk about that some in the interview. We met on his first night out in Athens. He went to the Downstairs, which was a great underground bar. And by underground, I mean actually literally like down a flight of steps under the pavement here in Athens. And it was where a lot of great music got its start. Timmy talked real honestly about his dad's kind of mania, his kind of bipolar thing. And he talked about um, the eventual death of his mom and what a blow that was to him. And just how hard it has been for him to sort of beat back some of his demons and have successful relationships. He's he's struggling with a little bit of that right now. I thought it was a really good conversation. I, I do have I do have one more thing I want to say about this thing that's gotten under my skin so bad this week. If if you're a, a musician who hires musicians, or you're a music director in a band, or or you're a band manager or something, and you make it your business to go around shaming someone for actively dealing with their depression and taking it head on. Uh, and make it harder for them to get work by talking to other musicians about their struggle. Just next time, just put a gun up to their head and pull the trigger. You may as well. I mean, this is some like old school, old music industry, 70s, baby boomer shit. And man, it's just drives me a little bit crazy that like we've lost so many great musicians just this year. I mean, David Berman, Neil Casal, not to mention like just the past, like Ronnie Montrose, Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, Avicii. This list is just endless. And if you get a little like adrenaline zip from talking shit and it makes you feel important to judge people, Jesus Christ, man, just fuck off. So, so frustrating. Well, um, let's jump on our interview with Timmy Conley. Okay. Yeah, sure. I can hear you. Okay. It's actually good for me to have these on, the headphones. Yeah, so you know whether you're like drifting off the mic or not. Well, that and um, and I might mention this later too if it comes up, but I have misophonia. I don't know what that is. It's a it's a um a tr- a, a trigger of when sounds trigger you. And one of the triggers for me is trickling water, which that Oh, fish tank over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you heard the Dopey podcast? Mm-mm. Dopey podcast is a guy named David. He had a partner named Chris in the beginning, and they were set up at Chris's or David's dad's house in Manhattan. Um, it's a, the Dopey podcast was about drugs, uh, drug stories, and dumb shit. That was ah. the, that was their that was their, by their description. 
in the first few episodes, I was listening and I kept like looking to find out what was leaking in my house. And finally, about episode three, they mentioned that there was a fish tank. Oh, <laughs> I didn't. That'll I didn't get a it. fish tank because I felt like I needed to to have a podcast. I just happened to have a, my daughter wanted to fish really bad, so we had a fish. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we can probably jump in. You ready? Let's do. All right. Move my coffee off my notes here. Oh, when you say it's a trigger, what is it? You say uh, like you hear the sound and then it 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 immediately brings up negative emotion. Oh. It could be like anything from like rage, anger is typical. Yeah. That, so that's what I that's what I get. You know, beavers have a very strong cortisol reaction to the sound of running water, which is why they build dams. Did you know? Did that? not know that. They like I, I'm trying to imagine them like taping a bunch of electrodes to a beaver. <laughs> I, I know how did they figure that? Out? <laughs> I took that information deep. at face value when I read it on the internet, and who knows if it's actually true? Is now that I think about it, but mm-hmm. someone told me that beavers have a panic reaction instead of running water. And I guess if if you live in a house oh, panic that's reaction surrounded by cortisol is the stress hormone. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. To a strong cortisol reaction to the sound of running water, um, which I guess if your house was made out of sticks and surrounded by water, yes, it'd be right. kind of like you are, or my reaction to the smell of smoke in a house. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh shit. My house is about to go away. Yep. Yeah. So do you know any, do you have any idea why you're triggered by running water? No. Are we taping, by the way? I mean, I, I always turn it on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, interestingly, um, I've done a million kinds of healing work in my life. I've basically like, anytime some sort of healing work was offered to me, I've, I've said yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's been an in, a total adventure and I've done so many things in so many ways. And I've tried to get at that several times like and it's it's always comes up blank like there's no i haven't been able to get it it's one of the very few things that's just like been immutable in my pursuit of mental health Hmm. very odd all right let's let's jump let's 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 contextualize all this talk good all right, I'm here with Timmy Conley. Uh, I know Timmy originally from the band The Fuzzy Sprouts. Moved here in what, 92, 91? 91. Yeah. Um, after that, Kite to the Moon. Also, Timmy Conley and the Wonderland Rangers, which is your current project. Yeah. Uh, also, the founder of the Wild Rumpus Parade, which is uh, becoming like Athens' version of Mardi Gras, the Halloween parade here in Athens. Yes. I talked about that a lot right before it happened here. There was an article on one of the big travel websites. Like, if you're going to go to Athens, Georgia, Halloween week is the time to go. Man. Wow. Imagine being the person who founded Mardi Gras. Like, 20 years from now, they'll be like, there was some guy. He was this, like, creative, crazy person, genius, and he started this parade. But, like, I don't remember his name or whatever. Yeah, right. I think I need to go down there and study how they do that. How they do Mardi Gras? About, yeah, learn about, learn about how they do it. Learn about how they fund it. I need to know about the funding and stuff like that, nuts and bolts stuff. It's like the city, I think, provides all the barricades and, like, you know, double and triples the amount of police on the streets. And Do you remember bailing me out of jail in, in Mardi Gras? 
I do. I had forgotten about it. <laughs> and for years, I would make jokes on stage in New Orleans. Yeah. Because uh, Howlin' Wolf down there, when we would play there, there were Mardi Gras-style barricades mm-hmm. right in front of the stage. And I would I would go to the microphone. We took a quick set break. And I'd be like, you want to hear my impersonation of a New Orleans cop? <laughs> like, you boys get off that barricade now. Hey, you want to go to jail, too? Nice. <laughs> That's what happened to you, right? You guys? Uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. We climbed on top of a building to watch the Zulu parade That's and got hauled right. off. And then, yeah. This is why I say 5 8 is the best band in Athens because there, nobody else bailed me out of jail in New Orleans <laughs> and at Mardi Gras. It was 5 8. <laughs> I, man, I've just. You guys uh, used your band funds and busted us out. Yeah. I will never forget that. So, you, who else? Me and Michael Wagner. Was it Wagner too? Angie Grass. Oh man. Yeah. There was yeah. a there was yeah, there was a, at least four of us. I think it was Dave Demisey that let me know that you were all locked up. That's correct. He came to me and said they got in trouble. They got on a roof. There were no signs that said don't get on this roof. But Yeah, that, we climbed a fire escape. Oh. I didn't know that part. Yeah, we sure did. And Dave was my one call from jail. That was my call. And I was like, dude, I'm in jail in New Orleans. He's like, no way, no fuck. And then I guess you had called in just to the house because y'all yeah, were living we together. we were living together. And, and if, then, you, if you're going to get one call in jail, <laughs> you could do a lot worse than Dave Demisey because that guy, yeah, yeah he, would, he, would, he would move heaven and earth to help a friend. He's a you, wonderful person. Y'all got it worked out, man. Yeah. We didn't spend the night, thanks to you. And it's easy to do. You know, in mm-hmm. New Orleans, when they start throwing people in jail at Mardi Gras, a lot of people sit there until Monday, mm-hmm. you know, or at least the following weekend. We could go down a rabbit hole about, like, the nitro fuel and American capitalism being chattel slavery and the fact that the South is so conservative because capital hasn't forgotten that relationship and is still very nostalgic about it. But that's a, yeah. Yeah. But that's probably, we only have a little bit of time here. <laughs> so. All right, so yeah, all these bands, Fuzzy Sprouts, Kite to the Moon, Wonderland Rangers, also founder of the Wild Rumpus, but ever since I met you, you've been a fine art painter too. Yeah, here and there. I mean, that was my university degree. Where'd you go to school? UMass. Amherst? Yeah. What's the name of that hotel there that used to have punk shows at? You know what I'm talking about? I do. Uh, May that was in Northampton. Yeah, that's it. Northampton. Um, the... Uh, We'll have to Google that one. Mm. Hampshire Inn or something? Something. We yeah. played there with Rodan from Louisville. And Jason from Rodan, who's a wonderful guy. Later, he, he uh, maybe 15 years later, he, he died of cancer. He was a Bummer. really great guy. Said the kindest thing to me after that show. It's one of the things that kept me going for a long time. So you went there for college? Yeah, and in fact, I mean, probably... The legacy of UMass Art School like continues on because, you know, here's me like in my senior year of high school and my mom was like, you have to apply to some colleges. I was like, I don't know. And she's like, what about <laughs> UMass? And I said, it had a reputation as a party school. And I was like, I don't want to go to a party school. And she said, just apply. And so I did and I got in and I ended up going and of course I ended up partying a whole bunch. And then... We ended up having some legendary Halloween parties yeah. at UMass. So Halloween's always been a big deal for you. Yeah, since then, yeah. And then, I mean, then of course, like I came down to Athens and in 91, we did a Halloween show, with Fuzzy Sprouts and Loggerhead at Club Fred. And like, I think one person watched us play 
you know, but we stuck with it and kept doing Halloween shows every year. And then, and then started, you know, started the rumpus in 2009 and then that just took off. So yeah, just Halloween parties. Has it been 10 years since the beginning of the rumpus? Yeah. It's done, huge. Done 11. That parade is longer than the Athens Christmas parade. And that was like a two and a half, three hour investment to go yeah. down there. I'm so proud, dude. I'm so proud of our town for showing up for that. Cause it really, I mean, it really is everybody, everybody that does the rumpus is the rumpus. We have, we've all made it into something together. Yeah. Yeah. It's Athens doing Athens like only Athens can. And it's, it's the most democratic parade ever. Like you can show up and join the parade. You can stand there and watch the parade. You know, uh, you can set your band up using an outlet outside of chick piano. Yep. And, and, and play music while everybody walks by like Fishbug did this year. Yeah. Is your mom a single mom? Uh, I mean, they were married until we were all off to college. Oh, okay. Yeah. My mom and dad, but you guys were super close. Yeah, I got everything from my folks. Yeah. You know, my dad was kind of bipolar, but he was a genius. What did he do? Well, he was an architect by trade, but he was, he had a photographic memory and a fascination for philosophy and history. So he was really gifted at philosophy and history and physics and architecture. Yeah. And he studied with like, Buckminster Fuller. Oh, no for shit. For example. And he was a modernist with architecture, but so he had this, you know, his IQ was like 190 or something. Mm -hmm. Just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he couldn't talk. Nobody was on his level. So it was endlessly frustrating for him to deal with people because nobody could match his intellect. Um, so, you know, it was difficult for him, but then in his, you know, his early life, he signed up for the war after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and went to Japan. Well, went to the South Pacific and then fought in Okinawa. Yeah. And nobody, nobody should ever have to do that. No. Yeah. Island hopping in the South Pacific was brutal. If, you know, I, I don't want to have to tell the stories that he told me mm -hmm. you don't want to see the watercolor paintings that he made of his experiences because it's just you know people don't have a concept you know he never recovered from the trauma right of that so when you describe him as bipolar and brilliant I, I mean did he have periods of time where he was insanely productive and then periods of time where he wouldn't get out of bed or no he was really industrious yeah he yeah he didn't sleep much Mm -hmm. So he was always reading or studying. Um, and when he wasn't, he was working. So yeah, he was a constant, constantly active with his mind. Mm -hmm. But he didn't shield you from some of the trauma that he experienced. He talked to you about Oh it. no, we took the brunt of it. We took that on the nose, dude. He would like fly off the handle. Yeah. But, you know, he could be triggered like a fear reaction, the post-traumatic thing. Uh -huh. Bless his heart, man. We did. We tried to stand by, but you know, you know, he would fly into a rage. There was times when I was like, you know, I don't know how old, 12 years old, standing between him and my mom. Yeah. Like to make sure nothing happened between them. Yeah. How long would these outbursts of rage last? Well, I mean, he never was physical. Yeah. Thank goodness. But, um, 
they were quick lived and then yeah. he would be over it. Was he remorseful? No. A lot of brilliant people have a hard time with remorse. No, he wasn't he wasn't conscious in a sense of it like that. Right. My dad was he was not a narcissist, but he had those tendencies which is very self focused, unable to see beyond their own rationale. Yeah. But we also had great times, and I don't want to paint it as a, a picture. Of, right. I don't want to paint a, a, that bad of a picture. We also had wonderful times. But do you feel like as an adult that you've had to sort of defuse or disarm that tendency to have these explosive outbursts? Because that's a, that's a, that becomes a pattern that gets written into your personality when you have a parent that has outbursts of anger. The more I take my own responsibility for myself, the less that I would blame anybody else for what's happening with me. And right. the less I want to or want or see the need to yeah. lash out like that. I don't ever see the need to have outbursts of anger, but they still happen. I haven't felt that kind of anger in a long time. Yeah. I understand it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I used to. You know, it's a funny story now, but like, you know, when, when my first kid, who's now Ollie, was like mm -hmm. a baby, right? It, it was a lot of crying, a lot of crying. And then like, you know, at one point, I think we tried to go like a non-pacifier route, you know, in general, because we didn't want to like rely on a pacifier. That <laughs> 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 There's this one day I can remember. Right. Like, oh, please take this pacifier. Right. Because it was like yeah. a lot of crying and... and and they took it for a, and then spat it out and kept crying. And I literally took the pacifier out on the back steps of the house and tried to smash it with an axe. And it wouldn't smash. They're made where they, they were shatterproof. Yeah. And pacifiers, you can run, a, run them over with a train and they won't break. Right, right. So, but I think that was the point at which I was like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Like, that wasn't funny, but... It was funny. It was funny enough that it was like I, you know, had a moment of self awareness, and I was like, "Okay, no, no, that's just not right. a solution here." Right. But I, you got. And we write, can laugh about it now. You got to write that out of your own personal script. I inherited a lot of anger reaction tendencies, right. and they're not mine. Yeah. And there's other people that I that I, I that I, I attracted into my life that that fostered that that mm -hmm. that I had to root out because it's not appropriate for me anymore. And it's not in my basic essence to, to be angry with anybody or to feel that kind of reaction. So I'm done with that. I hope. Did you have siblings? I got an older sister and a younger brother. So you're the middle child. Yeah. You have any of that middle child stuff? Oh, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So you you said your parents were married until you everybody got off to college. So yeah, split up. Mm, mm hmm. Nineteen eighty eight. Man. Yeah, which was corresponds to a breakup that I had in college too, and I took some time off. I was like, dang, you know, I was just destroyed. So I went and I lived with mom for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and then I went back to school and finished up, and then I came down here. When I met you, you and Dave Demisi were pretty inextricably linked culturally. You were both transplants from the Northeast. Yeah. I think Dave had a little harder time assimilating with the Southern thing, you know? Well, I had lived in Tennessee for 10 years. Oh, okay. 
So when I moved to Georgia, I knew I kind of wanted to get back into the South, like in the slower speed of things. Yeah. And like where Massachusetts is very mental oriented. And I wanted something that was a little more rootsy or like from the heart based mm -hmm. kind of like interactions. And so Athens was a good choice for that mm -hmm. and didn't have the kind of like prevalent hillbilly mentality that was going on in East Tennessee. Where was it Knoxville? Or? Yeah, I was in Knoxville. Which is a much better place now. Yeah. And I still have, like, wonderful friends from back then, too. There's some great bands from Knoxville. I'm thinking predominantly of Super Drag. Yeah. Really good band. Yeah. And Fuzzy Sprouts, you guys played you did a couple solid years here. Went through a sure. three drummers that I can think of. I think it was six. Yeah. I know that you and your mom were close because you and I had some discussions around the time that she passed. Hmm. And um, I know that was really hard for you. Oh, I was destroyed. Yeah. Absolutely destroyed. Was it cancer? Yeah. And I mean, my dad passed like in 2009. And then so mom passed in 2013. And I mean, the grief, there's no, I don't know. There's no way around it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I learned so much because I really didn't have anybody die in my life until I was in my thirties. I didn't understand it, you know, and I, I didn't understand people who were grieving, but it turns out, so it turns out that grief is like, ah, it just seems like one of the, the biggest problems we face. Yeah. You know, I quit functioning. Yeah. I quit paying bills. Yeah. Quit taking care of myself. It's well, a long road out of there. Grief, for me, grief carries with it the two, like, wicked stepsisters of depression and anxiety. Yeah. Um, and it's not complicated for me. Like, grief is just this sadness at, at, of loss and a lack of hope for ever seeing that person again and having that experience, mm -hmm. you know? So, and also nothing throws your level of emotional dependence on someone into sharp relief, like the realization that they're no longer there anymore. Like you don't really, it's that classic Otis Redding song. You don't, you don't miss your water until your well runs dry. You know, um, your parents were together and you're growing up, but you had some time with your mom after they split up and yeah. Yeah. So you got here with the crazy guitar. As I remember you had a butcher block guitar and like when people say butcher block, normally they mean a vaguely strat shaped guitar with like laminated chunks, but this was yeah. actually like a cutting board, a square block of wood. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, I got it at a yard sale. Yeah. And the guy that sold it to me said, my mother would kill me if she knew I was selling this. Like it was, you know, a hand, you know, an heirloom right. you know, for chopping tomatoes and garlic for the family sauce. Right, right, right. And I was like, okay, yeah. And it, I looked, it was like vaguely guitar shape and heft and I chiseled it out and slapped a neck on it, routed out for some pickups. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty savage instrument. Yeah. It was a great sounding guitar. Yeah, thanks. How, how did you find a case for it, though? I don't know if I, I miss, I mean, it's whatever. It was you just tiny. Just yeah. throw it in whatever. Right. Yeah, it was small. 
Yeah. So when I met you, Fuzzy Sprouts were gigging all the time, and um, you guys stayed pretty busy. And then we, I left to go to Chicago for a while, mm-hmm. and um, Fuzzy Sprouts eventually wound down. And I remember there were a couple of years I was sort of keeping track, and 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 you were doing Kite to the Moon. And then I heard that your mom had passed, and yeah, and you just disappeared for a while. What happened? I think. Uh, see, I don't even remember that well because it's like when that kind of stuff goes happens, it's just like it's like a tunnel to go through. But um, you know, in two thousand nine, I started the Wild Rumpus, and that started to become very consuming. What was the impetus for that? Like, what made you think? You know, what Athens needs is you had already been doing Halloween parties with the Sprouts and yeah. done some in Northampton. Mm-hmm. I put out a solo record mm-hmm. um, with Daniel Pikein. But he was doing Row Your Boat Records. Yeah. And he put out this collection of songs that I had recorded, like, just for myself. Mm-hmm. And there was no filter on these this record. It was like, I wasn't thinking anybody would hear it or anything. I was totally doing it for my own amusement. And um, being such a huge music fan, I shared it with Daniel, you know. And he loved it. And he was like, let me put that out. And I said, okay. And we did. And so we were just kind of brainstorming things to promote the record. Yeah. And he said, what about a parade? And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't, like, I don't, wouldn't want to do anything to promote myself that was like that, you know. But um, the idea worked on me. And I said, well, maybe a Halloween parade. Yeah. So we did it and called it the Wild Rumpus and it just, just took off. And so if you haven't been to the Wild Rumpus in Athens um, next year, just do it it's 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 mardi gras and super bowl weekend and the best halloween party you've ever been to all rolled into one um and they block the streets off in athens and there's like a as their bands all along the parade route and yeah. it's really turned into a thing and it's so neat yeah yeah and it's multiple days now too there's like mm-hmm. there's a kids night you know and it's pretty extraordinary how many of the uh, so and you dressed up as uh, Max from Where the Wild Things Are? Yeah, with the have you only ever had one suit or has it been multiple? Same, suits? same one <laughs> since the first year. <laughs> I don't have time. Yeah. I don't have time to get a new suit. Yeah, so like usually hits me about like three days ahead of time. And I'm like, oh God, where's my? Oh, okay, there it is. You know, I don't even have. I didn't even fix the rips from last year. Yeah, I just get up and do it. So. It, this year it made money. It's made money the last few years, and you donate them to charity, right? Yeah, I've been making charitable donations since 2010. Yeah. First year was 2009, so. Yeah. So we've given over almost $20,000 over the last 10 years. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. So who have you given money to? This year was Nucci Space. Of course. Um, in the past, it's been the Athens Area Homeless Shelter, mm-hmm. um, Athens Land Trust, Georgia River Network, like all the you know, Athens Area Humane Society. Yeah, always great people. Yeah. Amazing, deserving organizations. Nucci Space, of course, in the business of saving lives. Yeah. And my friends, you know, saved my friends, I'm sure. Hundreds of lives. Nucci Space has literally saved hundreds of lives. It yeah. saved my life. Right. So right before I moved to Chicago, you know, I was like mooning around like absolutely a, a, the lowest ebb of my adult life. A lot of stuff going on. 
and I walked into Nucci space and I said, man, I got I need some help. Wow. And, um, did anybody know that about you? I didn't know that. I know that my brother was pretty concerned. Yeah. My twin brother, David. And, so um, here's why I'm so happy you invited me in the, uh, today to talk and, and why I'm so happy you're doing what you're doing. Cause men need to talk about this crap. Yeah. Men don't. It's a situation. Yeah. We need to talk about it. Well, so I heard this thing on the radio the other day and, um, the CDC is reporting that life expectancy has just tumbled in the last 10 years. Yeah. And a lot of it is opiates, but a lot of it is suicide too. And terrible food. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. Well, that's all that's, that's about affordability and yeah. I mean, I'm not really qualified to talk about the opiate problem, but, um, the food situation I mean, we talk about mental health and like your brain is an organ in your body, people. If your body isn't healthy and you're not getting the right foods, you're really a disadvantage for your brain working right. Yeah. Well, I've heard a lot of stuff recently about gut flora and. um, Oh, so true. Yeah. And mental health. And I've actually done some experiments for with Lisa and I and like high probiotic foods um, and noticed like a having a noticeable lift in mood when we're really conscious about feeding the micro herd in our belly Mm -hmm. you know and um that's fabulous when did you know when did you find out that your mom was sick oh gosh well um uh, you know about 2011 or something yeah and what kind of cancer was it it was kind of a decentralized something had metastasized yeah yeah I mean, you know, she, when we talk about people's health and like my mother's health and my dad and their mental health, you know, you have to be taken in the context of generations of difficulties and traumas that happen to these people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So they go back generations. Irish, Irish family. Uh, my dad was Irish family, Irish English, and my mother, her family came from Italy. Oh. So, um, yeah, my mom's mom was OCD, uh-huh. crazy OCD, like wash your hands all day, OCD. Yeah. And so my mom, my mom was very sane, but, and so she, you know, she had the perspective of her mother being like that. And my mom's strength in overcoming her adversity of her childhood was, is like, she's a superwoman for for having a real a, a life period and for raising three kids and for, yeah. for showing up and being so solid for us and everything but she managed and didn't tell us about she about her ocd like she had it pretty pretty heavy too really but she just masked it until the end like i didn't even know that she suffered that until we were talking in her last days. And she told me about how, you know, every time she would go to sleep, she had to go through the house and touch certain pictures in the living room before she could feel okay to go to sleep. Like, so it was like one of those things. So I inherited some of that, but, um, you know, my mom, you know, was kind of pre boomer ish, you know, born in 1939. Yeah. I wish that that generation had more, of a sense of in general of their health 
yeah. you know, their bodies and staying healthy. And it, it seems like they're challenged in that area. Well, was your grandma born in the U.S. or was she? No, she was Italian. Yeah. I think a lot of people got here and just hit the slippery slope of trying to be okay as first-generation immigrants. And their personal well-being was secondary to creating a viable financial future for their kids. And they passed that down to your mom's generation. And, like, it wasn't, I think, until a lot of Gen X people were like, Man, this doesn't really work for me. Yeah. That people started to be like, maybe I should like try to get a little more sleep or and they had survival to deal with for right. sure. My grandparents for certain. Like they 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 grew their own food and mm-hmm. and you know Were they in Georgia? North Carolina. North Carolina. Um near the Virginia border. Where were they from? They were I mean Talk about Appalachian, like all the way back. Oh, okay. Like, I don't know. I don't think it was even 20th century when my first ancestors came here. I, th- I think that I think that my great great something got off the boat and before 1900 and and moved south mm-hmm. um, and set up in Virginia somewhere on my dad's side. I don't know about my grandparents. They were they were rural people, farmers, sawmill workers, eventually textile mill workers. But, you know, they came out of the Great Depression. Um, my grandmother used to talk about they'd buy a 50-pound sack of flour, 50-pound sack of sugar, 14 or 20 heads of cabbage, a bushel of apples, and, then, and like 20 pounds of coffee. And the rest of winter was on whatever they could hunt and fish and grow and wow. catch. And that was, that was it for my grandma was the oldest of nine kids. There must be a great musical thread going through your family somewhere. So my you guys, you my, and David are both like Yeah, my mom's monsters. maiden name is Alcorn, right? And like a, a Johnny Alcorn, I think is his name was from Reedsville. Some, somehow related to this guy who was one of the original Clawhammer banjo players. Mm-hmm. My mom was an opera singer, like which is a big jump, right? Culturally from like a one pair of shoes a year kid to an opera singer at the University of North Carolina and then... You know, she had an audition offer um, from the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, which she she didn't get on the bus. She had terrible stage fright. Oh, it's pretty wow. wild. Yeah. I mean, that still makes me smile, like, so much to hear that. She, she sang for the rest of her life, um, mm-hmm. less so in her later years, but um, she was in you know, community theater and stuff and was a tremendously gifted musician. But Is she still with us? No. Mm. She passed 2014. And um, it's been really Sorry, hard. Sorry, bud. Yeah. So, when your mom, your mom gets this cancer diagnosis. Did you get to spend much time with her before she passed? Man, to be honest, I thought we were going to beat it, and I was going to get another decade with her, and it didn't pan out. I was, I guess, I was just in flat denial of it, you know. And or I, and I, she, you know, we didn't live in the same state, so I wasn't seeing right. how serious it was. Real, and she would. She would kind of gloss over it and didn't want me to worry about stuff and was, all, you know, I think really protecting me from the, from the, the worst details of it. But I did spend the last couple of months with her. Yeah. Hardest time of my life, hands did, down. Did she go into hospice? I about went crazy. She did. I think I did lose my mind. Yeah. While I was up there. 
hospice is the weirdest um it's the weirdest twilight world between life and death because you spend so much time with your dying parent trying to beat it you go to like we were yeah. going to emory and uh and she was going out to md anderson and you know the hospitals in my hometown and just like you know we're going to beat this we're going to try this chemo and that chemo and this is a trial and that's uh it's experimental and md anderson is running a short like experimental course of chemo for this cancer and and then one day they're just like yeah let's uh game over you know we're gonna put yeah. you in this incredibly professional comfortable environment and you've got a pump for um morphine or fentanyl or whatever it was and um it was i mean i'm super grateful for hospice and sometimes actually like think about how like there was a day when my mom was in hospice care where we it was a beautiful day just like today um uh and we dragged all the furniture outside there's a little concrete pad outside our room yeah and we just posted up there in the sunshine uh and it was like an old family gathering there was like my my um my family was all around me a lot of my relatives who i didn't see that often and we just sat out there in the sun and we didn't talk about death or cancer or drugs or my mom had one of those big beds that's like a giant chair you know like, yeah and we sat out there in the sun and it was probably the last really good day mm-hmm. and um and they were all super professional and and wonderful and 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 um I don't know. Was your what was your hospice experience like? Was it like that? Well, yeah. I mean, sort of. It didn't last long. Yeah. I mean, by the time my mom went to hospice, I think it was like a a week or something. Yeah. So I had been commuting into Cambridge, Mass, where she was where she was um, mm -hmm. from her home, which is about 30 miles out of Austin mm -hmm. in the snow and in the ice, you know, and everything, you know, you know, I, w I wouldn't trade having that, those last, that last time, that was last days with my mom for anything, but it was the hardest days of my life. No doubt. Yeah. Just brutal. Yeah. Well, you know, once I realized it was finally, you know, coming to an end, you know, I, I went through the range of emotions that I, I imagine most people do. Yeah. You know, just staring down your entire history with somebody and how much you love them and oh, how much space they're holding for you, you know? Yeah. And I mean, when they're gone and the experience, I think that just that term holding space, like, and so when somebody actually goes and they're gone, like, I think that's what we feel is like that giant vacuum yeah. Like when somebody's really holding you up in their life mm -hmm. and that goes away, man, that just wipes you out. Were your siblings around? For yeah. That? Yeah. We were all together. Yeah. You guys are pretty close. Uh, I, I am close to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love my brother and sister, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, every family goes through this, that, the other in the wake of something like this. It's like, 
you know, you hear it so often, you know, it's just a bad time for people. Yeah. We hope to patch things up. I mean, come on, what are we going to do? We, you know, we, we're still here. Yeah. We got to live. Yeah. We got to get along. Yeah. You know, what are we here for? Part of my mission in life as an incarnation on earth was mm -hmm. to help my parents. Yeah. I know this. Like, because when they were both gone, I was like, I got this like, well, there it is. There, that was it. Like, in a way, I got this like feeling like, well, I'm done. Of course, I'm not done. Right. There's so much more. <laughs> right, right. But my original intention was like, it's complete. Yeah. You know? And I was successful. I helped them, you know, be happy. Yeah. You know, in, in my own way. Talk to me a little bit about when you say holding space, what, what that means for you and what your what that meant in your relationship with your mom. Oh gosh, it can mean so many different things, but, um, I mean, it, literally, I think energetically mm -hmm. when somebody is holding space for you, literally like with their intention or their love for you, like it buoys you, like mm -hmm. it lifts you, it, it keeps you, it keeps you more stable, like having that love there. Um, you know, that's if somebody like that you're close to and our energy is intertwined, right? And I, I believe this fully. That's like the unseen, the energy between people is a real thing and it's a physical thing. Yeah. You don't see it, but it's physical. Yeah. Yeah. And so when a person departs like that, uh, like it just, there's, it severs that connection and there's still a connection. I believe that like from the spirit world to our world that you can still make use of, of some of that and you can still feel that. Um, but the physical thing has to, has to shift or has to go away. So I think loss does that. Now, then there's another kind of a holding space where it might be more like a projection from myself that I, like how I value somebody mm -hmm. like when David Bowie died. Yeah. Like, he was holding space for me somehow him being there. And I mean, I think this is true of him for a lot of people that he gave yeah. license to a lot of people to be free, to act, to, to be creative, to uh, you know, all these things that David Bowie meant to people. Yeah. So in that way, like when he, when he died, it like was absolutely, I felt that as well. Like, Oh my God, you know, just him being there meant that I could do this and this and this or be this and this and this. And I think the value of art for people is that it creates an empathic experience where we can sort of, it's like being an emotional astronaut, right? Like for me, the person that David Bowie sounds like he was for you, Anthony Bourdain was for me. Oh, wow. And I still can't really talk about Anthony Bourdain's death because yeah, I didn't really understand why he was so important to me until just a few months ago. I was like, why am I still taking this so hard? But because he was this manifestation of goodwill, he was an American and everything that that means, all the privilege that that embodies, but he was aware of it. And he would go to these other cultures with cameras and be like, look, we're all on this planet together and we all eat food and we break bread together and it's a fellowship and it's a communion. And if we can't figure out how to get along, like we're doomed. And then he, and then he did exactly what doomed people do, you know? 
Yeah. And I haven't really bounced back from it yet, you know. And I feel that way about Bowie represented that for a lot of people because he was this amazingly sort of free person, like very fluid with his gender identity, very fluid with his um, art. Like you've been described as an incredibly fluid guitar player. Like that's something I've heard over and over. And Bowie was that way in every aspect of his art, his 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 manifestations, you know, the Thin White Duke and the Latin Saint and all these different characters, but also his his ability to write and play and like he changed and changed and changed and that gave a lot of people a lot of freedom and then when he died it was like oh shit you know we're all headed yeah. towards that yeah in addition to just being like an amazing human being yeah i remember seeing him in atlanta it was mm -hmm. when he was on the earthlings tour at one time he just like in the show he just kind of stopped and he was sort of chit-chatting with the person in the front row it was like so personable yeah and so charismatic <laughs> yeah. and so comfortable in yeah. his own skin well there's a kindness that underlies all of that right yeah and that's the other thing about about bourdain that's important to me is how kind he was yeah you know and um bowie was just you know have you, i think it's the band granddaddy have you ever heard the story about him just turning up at their New York show, walking in and saying, hello, hello I'm David. And oh, like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like y y okay, yes, we know who you are. And yeah. He, but he knew every member of the band's names, and he was a big fan, and he talked about his favorite songs, and they were just like, is this happening? Is David Bowie in our dressing room talking about what great band we are? You know, but that was the essence of his kindness. It was very, like, it was incredibly generous, and that's yeah. just who the guy was. Um so S S Sam Skolton was on recently. He's this amazing uh, guitar player, singer, songwriter from Louisville, and he lost his wife to cancer. And he was talking to me about the breakfast that he went to with his father, who had also recently lost his wife. They were at Waffle House at like Jeez. 11 o'clock at night. And um, I remember the breakfast after my mom passed. Like it was just a thing that had to happen. Like you can't just stop eating, you know? Yeah. And that was the beginning of climbing out of the hole of my mom's death. But mm. do you remember events like with your father gone? Like I'm assuming that someone of the three siblings had to like take the wheel and handle funeral arrangements. And Actually with my dad, we didn't. And we didn't find out about him passing until days after because he lived in florida um with his wife and so we didn't know i mean we knew he was you know we knew his days were numbered but yeah so we didn't but we all went to florida yeah um for a funeral and i mean everything was more or less handled and in the in the case of my mom yeah that's what i was more thinking about oh yeah well um that was in april 2013 and i had been invited to go and play play music on tour with sam fogarino so um the day after my mom died i was on the road back to athens oh my god i mean i couldn't i couldn't stand another day i i, I literally just could not do it i think i, I would have just like imploded and turned inside out if i had had to 
I, you know, I wish I had been able to muster the strength to, to stay and be with my brother and sister and do the memorial. And it was a beautiful memorial and I wrote something for it, but I wasn't there, but I, you know, it was filled with my mom's friends and a family. And I'm, you know, I, looking back on it, I, I wish I'd been able to do it, but I just couldn't, I couldn't. I mean, I hightailed it for Athens. Yeah. I hadn't been home in two months. Yeah. I hadn't seen my kid. I hadn't mm-hmm. been, I hadn't been in my home for two months. So I, I was just beside myself and you don't make the best decisions when you're in that state. I no, mean. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm to a point now where there might've been a time where I thought I knew what other people needed to do, uh, when they're grieving, but, um, that was informed by my innocence of that on my own part. You know, yeah. And now that I've lost some people, uh, that certainty is no longer there. <laughs> you know, it's that classic Bob Dylan thing. I was so much older then. I'm I'm younger than that now. Like mm. I know so much less about how other people should act these days. Well, it's a great way to be. Let everybody process how they're going to do. Sure. So you did a short tour with with Sam. Yeah, which probably saved my life. It was like yeah. threw me into a situation that was wonderful wonderful tour and with great people and got me completely out of my element, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was very positive. But then you were back in Athens and you had the double whammy of the post tour letdown and, Oh yeah. And like a cat had been getting into my house, like with my other cat and some neighborhood cat had gotten in and literally peed on everything in my house. Like it just smelled like, you know, cat urine all over my house. It was ongoing, dude. That's, that's, that's the fucking worst, man. <laughs> it was, it, was it summertime? Insult to injury. Uh, it was spring. Your mom died in winter. Yeah, April 1st. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the cat urine in Georgia summer is... It's, I, I sometimes imagine that the man who invented mustard gas was sitting in a shack somewhere in South Georgia going, <laughs> you know, if I could just concentrate this a tiny bit more, you know, it's about right. That's the worst. No, it's a long road back from something like that in, you know, what people say is maybe you never recover, but you just learn to kind of, you know, manage it, I guess. And I guess that's true yeah. to a degree, but. I think after I passed the two-year mark, I started to feel better again. It took a solid year to even emotionally get off the couch. Yeah. And then another year, and I started to have more, like, untethered, happy feelings about things. Yeah. You know, just spontaneously happy and not dragged down. So it was about a year before yeah. longer. To yeah. someone who's still down in that space right now, I've got a friend, as a friend of the show in Chicago, um, is dealing with an incredible loss right now. And, um, and, and like, if you could speak to the Tim that came back from the tour to a house that had been gassed by a Tomcat and you were like down in this funk, if you could talk to him right now, what would you, what would you say? Man, I guess just advise to keep doing the basics. Take a shower, (laughs) eat food, like eat healthy food, get out in the sunshine. And I pretty much did those things. Mm -hmm. 
I come, I'm lucky that I come from a strain of pretty resilient people and just keep doing man and be around people because being around people, you know, so many people freaking understand this and yeah, yeah, we've all, you know, most of us now have gone through this. So man, get out there and get the hugs for real and yeah. commiserate because when we spread that out you know not that not that you want to adopt anybody's grief but you know when somebody is feeling that and we connect on that level man there's there's a uh, there's a great sympathy that's mm-hmm. so healing and it's i think been a great part of my healing that people i didn't even know that well reached out to me and said hey you know so sorry you went through this let's let's get a coffee or or a beer or, you know, man, sending hugs or whatever. And then, you know, get together with people in real life too, of course. Like Facebook is great and you receive a lot of support from social media and stuff. You know, the addendum to that discussion is be with people. Yeah. Really be with people. I think the urban life is really hard for dealing with any kind of emotional discomfort because it's always magnified by the sense of isolation of being surrounded by millions of people but not making contact with anyone. That is so true. And then also Chicago is is it's wintertime in Chicago. It's yeah. brutal. I keep telling my friends there like you should just come visit. Come visit. And and get a little taste of what life is like here because you know, I did a year in Chicago, Court and Lisa, and trying to convince her to be my girlfriend, and um, and and we moved back down here eventually, you know, because it's just easier to live here. Well, you just have to force yourself. When you're in the dumps like that, you just have to force yourself to do it. Some days you're just not going to feel like it. Yeah. But do it. It's... Because what else are we doing? So tell me, so just the basics, right? <laughs> Shower. Yeah. Eat a handful of granola or something that is Clean up poison. the trash in your house. Yeah. Take it out. <laughs> clean, clean your environment. Get sunshine. Have you ever heard that interview with Mark Maron and, um, and um, Louis C.K.? What's that about? Maron asks Louis C.K. about an episode in his life where he was living on the second or third floor apartment and 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 C- Louis C.K. was in a depressive episode. And I, I think that mm. that dude's untreated like mental illness is part of why he's now kind of cast into the wilderness as a as a performer. And, he's, and he seems to be completely unrepentant about it. So it's kind of like, okay, man, enjoy Siberia, you know, um, but mm. at the time, this was before he was successful. Mayor was experiencing some success. He came to visit his old friend, Louis C.K., and Louis C.K. was living in an apartment full of black plastic bags of garbage. Oh. Just surrounded by garbage. That's not going to help. And they hung out for a while and talked, and eventually Marin said, hey, you know, you ought to maybe um, take out some of this garbage. And Louis C.K. said, I, I, I just can't. Well, that says a, a, a mouthful, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've been there, though. I've been yeah. that kind of depressed. Like, yeah. When, like, fortunately, I've never been surrounded by bags of garbage. But, I mean, I've been surrounded by junk, like a house full of junk, you know? Well, herein is another 
conversation we might need to have as you know collectively is this idea that it's all up to you to do everything for yourself and that it's you know what well, i mean it does all come down to us right but you know maybe if if buddy was in a better state he could have been like hey man let me get this uh, one of these bags for you and you do one too you know yeah. we could, and then you know we can get into to these deep deep holes where okay so here i'm going to reference my work as a um my healing work okay because right. i do massage and energy work and and i've been doing this for like 20 years yeah so you know that gives me a, a whole different perspective on things but um when a person is really the most in need of the help it's almost like they'll do anything in their power to avoid getting it like so many people I'll try, you know, if I come up with, you know, with a person that I care about or that I come in contact with and they're in that state and they need help, I might say, Hey, let's do a session or I'll do some energy work for you. And they'll miss the appointment. They'll obfuscate. They, you know, so there's all kind of um, other kind of things that'll rear their head in this situation. Like I don't deserve it. You know, I'm not good enough. It won't work. Like all these excuses pop up and it's, you know, so sometimes we just have to make them do it. I think the journey through pain though, at the worst ends at a kind of numbness, right? That's true too. And coming yeah. back from there means you have to come back through the pain. Yeah. And so you get to a point where you're surrounded by bags of garbage, but at least you're not actively sad or actively self-destructive you're just kind of numb you know mm -hmm. like oh yeah there's some garbage you know i'm surrounded by junk or i haven't gotten off the couch in 36 hours except to go piss but at least i'm not actively thinking i want to die right now i'm numb and so when you say to someone let's let's come back from there they're thinking that's okay I'm I'm good right here on this desert island of no pain. You yeah. know, I don't want to come back through the pain. Um, mm. But I, I think that like, and I've talked about this before. I'm I've been lucky enough to benefit from the structure of a of a twelve step program, which gives you like a step by step framework for for like defusing that bomb without having to try to do it all at once. You mm -hmm. know. Um, and I, I've often thought that if there was some way to adapt the whole 12-step thing to depression, that you could, like, go bit by bit, not have to turn completely into the, like, gale force wind of your feelings of abandonment or feelings of, of, of sadness or, or, or self-loathing. Like, let's just cut one wire at a time. Take one bag of garbage out, you yeah. know? Um, both both actually and meta metaphorically you know but um you started your climb back if if your mom passed in april and you were home from tour in spring you had all summer to kind of get ready for that's what 2014 the sixth fifth fifth wild rumpus was the work and preparing for that part of what pulled you out eventually 
Well, I may want to return to what we were just talking about. Oh, okay. Eventually, but to answer your question, um, in 2013, yeah, it, I, but of course you're not, you're like, you're sort of it. What is it? The first phase of grief is denial, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, you go into this sort of like shielding of yourself from the, you know, the excruciating nature of it, of the loss. And you're like, okay, everything, you know, you're, you know, I think people in that state have a certain amount of time where it's almost like a grace period before the, the dull pain really sets in. I mean, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. So I got a rumpus done and um, my relationship at that time was, was good and solid. And we, I had just proposed, um, and we were engaged. So that happened, that happened before my mom passed. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was something positive to look forward to as well. And that we worked on and those was like, I had, I had things in my life to dedicate to that were happy stuff that gave meaning. Yeah. But if I may re revisit what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, so when you're in that, for me personally, I want to speak from my own experience and the healing work that I've done and accepted for myself from others and such, there was just certain things I couldn't get to. So like I've tried to accept responsibility and change the things about my own life and about myself that I didn't like, weren't serving me, um, were outdated or causing depression or anxiety, but I haven't, I couldn't get to them. Yeah. So I've, I've always like sought out and I, that's totally my recommendation to anybody as well as to seek out healer people. Mm -hmm. And there's many, 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 many that are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, you know, in my own, my own way, you know, I've gone far enough with it. Like, you know, I mean, do taking care of my energy, mm -hmm. like in turn. And when I say that, I mean like my chakras, which are like your sensory perception centers that are through your body. Right. That's like the, you know, phase one mm -hmm. beyond that. There's our genetic makeup that we now know like trauma and other things are passed in our DNA. Like, so yeah, my dad was in world war two. Yeah. His dad was in world war one. So to a certain degree, like I inherited some of that and I feel it even though I've never been a warrior, I'm not a fighter, I, you know, but I under understand some of it. Anyway, if you want to get into your own life and start tweaking in with that stuff that's in, that ingrained or that generationally might go back a millennia, mm -hmm. it's really difficult work. So um, absolutely reach out to people and seek out the help. Yeah, I think for me, like the, through the course of my recovery from like trauma and addiction, for a long time, I was very emphatic that there was a right way and a wrong way to get better. And one of the things that having this podcast has taught me is that it's a, there are wildly varied paths to getting back to zero mm -hmm. or better than zero. Mm -hmm. You know, how are you doing now? You know, it's been a tough year in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. My wife lost her youngest brother last year about this oh, time. Sorry. 
and she works a really long way from the house. Like she has to drive a lot. And so there's been just a lot of emotional energy and kind of holding her mm. up and making sure that she gets what she needs so she can do this incredibly difficult work that she does and also being a dad. Good on you. But, uh, well, <laughs> but the podcast has been this journey too, you know, like I've, I've, um, I've learned a lot about my own sadness and exploring other people's, you know, like, um, that, uh, that there's an incredible, um, I get a lot from helping other people, although it's, it's often not easy. You know, there's definitely Word. times when people reach out and they're like, Hey, I, I need to talk and I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm so tired. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and because I'm, I'm kind of living in it a lot. You know, there was a moment mm -hmm. where I was one of these recent podcasts, especially hard one. And I was editing it and I was thinking I should have done a podcast about musicians and their pets or something happier. Cause, <laughs> but that's why I started this new song explication thing where I, that's like for at least some time of the week, all I'm focused on is how much I love music, you know, well, I think your uh, your podcast is brave and important work. Thanks, man. It's I, necessary. I just so many musicians are encouraged to not have any emotional life outside of like fuck yeah, man. Like that's the one emotion yeah. you're allowed to have. You know? And we're all nature deprived. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a touring band. <laughs> you're in a you know in a van on a highway, then you show up you know at a club, and there's you know, man. I, one of the hardest tours of my life was was uh, upper Midwest this time of year. One year, it was just yeah. the sky would just go from like lead colored to asphalt colored <laughs> to pitch colored, and then I would wake up and it would be lead colored again. But it would only be lead colored for about three hours, and then it would go to asphalt and then pitch again. And it just was this like gray to dark gray to black to gray to dark gray. and we would be driving down these highways in minnesota or northern wisconsin and there'd be these huge expanses of gray fields that had gone fallow because it was the end of the season but then there'd be a patch of black because it had been turned over to turn all that corn stubble back into the earth so whew, sky was gray dark gray black the earth was gray black gray black and then i would we would pass these farmhouses and i would see this little amber rectangle of light where someone was sitting down to dinner and I would be like just stop the van I'm gonna go sit down at that table and be with those people because yes. we were like in these grimy <laughs> concrete boxes that smelled like cigarette smoke and that vinegary sour beer smell and then yeah. in some punk rock house that was barely heated oh god and like it was just grim oh, everything was gray and, yes and i would see these farmhouses and be like i bet that's a big family i mean it uh, sounds like poland or something it felt like poland you know but like, i think of the people of poland when I was touring Europe with the Lolos in 2006, we, did, we hit a lot of countries in a little bit of time, and I kept realizing that, oh, man, southern Spain feels just like Texas and northern Mexico. And then, like, we were in rural England, and I was like, this feels just like North Carolina or Virginia. And, and at some point, we were in... Um, like uh sweden and i was like this feels just like minnesota and i was like wait a minute <laughs> like all those people came to the new world from yeah. the old world and settled 
where in places it felt like home. Totally. Yeah. So that's why you have so many Spanish people in 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 you know the old old Mexico, which is of course New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, Texas, and so many Swedes in northern Minnesota and and other nordic people and and then all these like celts in north carolina virginia because it just they got off the boat and were like huh this brings up something i was thinking about when you in the in the time between you you asked me to do this podcast and today Mm -hmm. that's so interesting and what do you think what do you think okay so in my experience it seems like humans gravitate toward that which is familiar yes right yeah okay So, and I think this is like scientifically examined as well. So we're comfortable with what we know. And that's the kind of feedback we want to receive also. You know, even social media does that. It gives you more of what you know, and they know that you'll click on it more. Silos you. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So how does a person who comes from adversity or trauma do something different? Break, break out of the trauma How cycle? Do you, yes, because, and I see this often, where if you're not happy with the way things are, but you can't make a different choice because it's unfamiliar. I think it involves a lot of risk. You've got to break a lot of habits. Um, yeah. There's this, there's this doctor. I think it's so difficult. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this woman um dr nadine burke harris i had to look her name up on my phone really quick she talks about adverse childhood experiences and how trauma affects um emotional and physical health later in life and i'm so happy that that's part of the discussion now she's the first surgeon general of the state of california like she is now like her mm-hmm. her the she's she and i don't normally steer people towards ted talks because i don't feel like mental health is something you can buy like a six-pack you know like you can't do 17 minutes and fix your life you know like but yeah but her ted talk is incredible and she talks about adverse childhood experiences and and there's a whole body of work about healing childhood trauma and i think it's really important because like so many of us are carrying around these wounds and we keep repeating these this all of us yeah all of us are well there's this great book also um that um, I discovered because of Mark Mirren. Um, and, uh, Is it Gabor Mate, perhaps? No. Because he's a psychotherapist that speaks on it as well. Talk to me about that. Well, you can, you can look him up as well, and anybody yeah. listening can look up Gabor mm-hmm. Mate, and mm-hmm. this is his field as well, is you know the, the childhood trauma and the triggers that, that that causes through a person's life. Yeah, I think that like the healing of long-term trauma is just something that you just do every day and and try to become and I think that's the great value of therapy is you go in and you say to someone, "Hey, I'm having these issues and these problems. This is what my childhood was." And and they mm-hmm. say, "Well, let's look at the ways you're manifesting that in your daily life now and let's try to break that cycle." Yeah. And and, and because therapy is so expensive, part of what I hope to accomplish with the podcast was to help people see themselves and other people and, and learn from other people's mistakes or at least learn to identify their own mistakes as they're happening and start to try to kind of diffuse that bomb. But also you have mm. these other short-term periods of extreme trauma where in your case was the death of your mom. Certainly uh, something similar happened to me, but also 
the the end of my first marriage threw a lot of things into sharp relief in my life that I realized like I've been doing the same thing over and over and it's not good for me or the person that I end up sort of taking as an emotional hostage, you know? Wow. Yeah. And, and, and I think that let's talk about some of the devices that you used. Well, for me, do you want to mention that? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was just like, for any addict or alcoholic, it just becomes like there's a great power in read the read the read the literature of the program, get a sponsor, go to meetings, and be involved in it. Like deal with the problem every day. Don't and get out of get past that first stage of denial, and and then get into the step work because that's what works. But yeah, I think for people who have more of a non-specific anxiety or depression disorder, um form healthy relationships ask for help if you need it talk to your people yeah make friendships with people who have something that you like i want to be more like that guy that guy seems happy yeah you know models and also learn not to use other people's bodies for your own distraction like athens one of the great things about athens if you're single is that there's a lot of a lot of people hooking up you know, but like that has its own self-destructive spiral. People using other people as a way of not feeling their feelings. That's when I when I say taking an emotional hostage. That's what I mean. Hmm. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna get involved with someone in order to, and that's like a codependent thing. And there's a whole there's a great book called Codependent No More, and several musicians I've talked to in the past few years have referenced it. Like, but it's it's uh, um. It's a way of kind of understanding how we use other people's behavior and 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 our and our the drama that we create with them is a way of not dealing with our elemental issues. Sure, you know. <laughs> sure, I wonder if I'm doing that with myself. I, I mean, mean, we're we're Gen Xers, right? Yeah, I think we're great at um, avoidance or. You know, I know for myself, delusion, I have to fight with illusion versus reality. Yeah. I got to constantly check myself oh, against the, reality. The book I was going to mention that, my, that Mark Maron turned me on to was The Fantasy Bond, which is, um, it's it's not a great book, but it's because it's written by a very clinical psychologist. But the idea is, is really powerful, and that is that people who had absentee parents, and a lot of us who had boomer parents had parents who were very career-oriented or just very very self-involved because that's what that generation was encouraged to do and they were absent from our lives in some ways and so as a result we formed these sort of idealized relationships with them of who we thought they were um, in order to sort of soothe this like sad and abandoned feeling person inside us and we carry that ability into future relationships so we get involved with people and we form this idealized idea of who they are, as you just said, delusion. Yeah. And that isn't fair to that person. No. Because we're, and then when they don't act the way we expect them to, we're like, what's wrong with you? I thought you were this person. And like, I've never been that person. Like, why would you think that? (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah. So the fantasy bomb was really powerful for me to sort of figure out like what unfair expectations I was bringing to relationships. And, And also like, it's not fair to expect someone to fix you. It's not someone else's job. You know, I'm not right. But it was also great to meet someone in in my wife who was who wanted me to be as happy as I wanted her to be. Like once that two way street was established, like 
the basis of a real relationship was suddenly possible. Ah, that's a huge thing, you know, and like I didn't expect that from any relationship prior ever. So that was a big corner to turn. That's sweet. Hey, the Crash and Ride podcast would like to let you know about a new industry-wide initiative focused on mental health care called Backline. Backline is a hub for artists, industry professionals, and their families to quickly and easily access mental health and wellness resources. Backline is partnered with leading support organizations and care providers to streamline access to services specifically geared towards the music industry. Go to www.backline.care, that's backline.care, to get the support you need to thrive both on and off the road. Now, I talked to someone recently from Backline as part of a services episode I'm hoping to air sometime before Christmas, and we talked about how Backline works. Basically, you you contact them through the website or through their hotline, and they pair you with a caseworker, and the caseworker is familiar with resources in your area to help you get the help that you need. That's everything from sober companions to go on the road with you on tour if you're struggling to stay straight and away from drugs on the road to plugging you into mental health resources in your area. They can figure out how to like hack your way through the jungle of paperwork if you're one of these people who's on the Affordable Care Act thing and like get mental health care based on the rules and regulations and ability to pay that you have in the place that you live. Once again, that's backline.care, B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Now, if you're a musician in the Athens, Georgia area and you're struggling, you can always go to NutriSpace. NutriSpace is a 501c3 nonprofit mental health resource for musicians and, and regular people in the Athens area. If you qualify, and by that I mean if you're a musician in the Athens area, you can go see a, a counselor and it'll be subsidized by NutriSpace. NutriSpace provides all kinds of great services, including like hearing screenings to make sure you're not going deaf from playing in your doom metal band or whatever. And also, you know, sometimes they have dentists come in and check people's teeth and give people fillings. I mean, NutriSpace does a lot of amazing work in our community, but their primary mission is to help musicians struggling with depression and anxiety. If you're just a regular person and you have depression and anxiety, you can go into NutriSpace and get a referral. Your help might not be subsidized. Like you may not be able to see a counselor for 10 or 15 bucks an hour like a musician can, but you, you can, they'll refer you to, to get the help and the resources that you need. So you can call NutriSpace at 706-227-1515 or go to nuci.org. That's nutri.org. And finally, if you're struggling with anxiety and depression and you're contemplating self-harm, you can always call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. It's 24-7. It's free. It's confidential. They have trained volunteers to help you through your crisis. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. Or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. All right, let's jump back into our interview with Timmy Conley. So you've 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 clawed your way out of that hole that you fell into after your mom's death, and sort of. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it ever leaves you completely. My dad once said to me, after his mom died, because his father died much earlier, he said, "You know, when both of your parents are gone, um, you feel very different about the world." That's true, from my experience. Yeah. 
I mean, there's just kind of a ghost on my shoulder, you know? It's like, I don't think I'm in the hole. Yeah. But it's like, just haunted or something. Mm -hmm. Definitely not quite all right. But you know what? I mean, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I have daily struggles. Yeah. But we all do. I don't, I, you know, has life on earth ever been easy for anybody? I don't know. I mean, it's it, tempting to look over there at people that you don't feel a kinship with and say, well, I think their lives are easy, but I, my suspicion is it's probably not. I don't think they are. Yeah. You know, we gotta, we gotta keep doing the obvious things yeah. like reinforcing with gratitude, you know, and focusing on the positive. I think that's huge. It's just grinding sometimes, you know, in, in, in as much as we want to hear life reflected back to us and how we feel like us, like we were talking about a minute ago, like when you're sad, you don't want to hear a happy song. It's insulting. You want to hear a sad song. Right. But that being said, we got to flip the script if we want to feel good. Yeah. Yes, we do want to feel good. It is better to feel good. What is your daily practice like? How do you hold it together these days? That's such a good question. Thank you. I do a lot of meditating. A lot? What's a lot? A lot is almost every day. And How long? I mean, it varies. Yeah. But um, meditating has saved my life. Do you have a period of time that you set aside for it? No. I just do it when I feel it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I feel like I'm edgy, I better sit. And it's just something I learned years ago from Tibetans. The Tibetan lamas at one point came to Athens. I remember that. I, yeah. I wasn't a part of that group. That was like, wasn't Kai Riedel kind of involved with that? We better talk to him about that. Yeah. Get him to do it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was like a cultural exchange this one year had to be mid nineties, early nineties, mid nineties. And they came yeah. and they, they visited Athens. They did a mandala, a sand mandala at the classic center and swept it up and dumped it in the river. And they did some other things. They did a, a chant at the UGA chapel that was beautiful. And, and then they did a small meditation practice group that was at Athens yoga. And I, I happened to be there and it was as simple as the guy just said, sit in a, this position with do you this with your hands and then just, Focus on your breathing. I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah. And if you can do it, you're good. You know, you just have to keep trying. That's yeah. as simple as it gets. And then your monkey brain will try to think and right. all the things you're dealing with will come up right, for you. Right, and then right. you just have to keep recentering on your breathing. Yeah. And if you do it long enough, you'll get to a point where you'll get into these different energy states and you physiologically will feel it. So meditation you're pretty yeah. careful about what you eat too. Well, I've been a vegetarian for 20 some odd years. Yeah. 25 years. Lacto ovo vegetarian. I mean, so I, I eat some, yeah. Dairy. Yeah. yeah. But you know, fresh fruit and berries and nuts. This yeah. Most of and my diet. I love wheat. I eat a lot of wheat. How much sleep do you get? Six or seven hours a night. Yeah. That's a good amount. It's not bad. I'm a pretty good sleeper. Yeah. 
I don't know. And I get on my bicycle every chance I get now. Man, aren't bikes amazing? I freaking love bikes. I've always loved bikes. I've ridden bikes since I was four or five. Yeah, same. Anyway, bikes to me are freedom. And I love the... I love the feeling of motion of bicycles yeah. and I love the feeling of not pumping gas today. Yeah. yeah. So did you manage to, to, to beat the OCD thing? You say your, your grandma had it very openly. Your mom had a, a quietly closeted OCD life. But yeah. I think I mildly have it. Yeah. Not to a point where it's an issue, but um, we touched on this, I think, when the mic was rolling, maybe right. at the very beginning, but I have this thing called mis misophonia, right. which is now just being identified as sound triggers. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this must be related to OCD, but it's where if I hear a, a, a certain sound, I'll get an anger reaction from it. There's certainly sounds that set me off, but they're often like that that uh, dead battery and a smoke alarm sound, which makes me completely insane. But oh uh, yeah, but just because I get it from trickling water, yeah, or um, quiet clicking sounds, so it can just send me into a rage, and it's not cool at all. And you can't blame anybody; it's not their fault right. if they're pouring themselves a cup of water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like um but you know your whole tagline loud guitars save lives is absolutely true in my case like i if i can turn up my guitar and that's why i like it loud right because quiet sounds mess with me sometimes huh yeah so that may be tied in with that but it's just i haven't i haven't been able to get a solution for that as much as i've tried i've tried hypnosis yeah i've tried other kinds of like tinkering with the fabric of the universe and like and how that like how my my incarnation is interfacing with the matrix of things and like that didn't that didn't access it either so i do not know hmm. what the deal is with that but i know it runs in the family your description of your reaction is conspicuously missing the word anxiety, but it sounds to me like that's what it causes. No, it's more like anger. Well, that to me is a natural reaction to anxiety, though. It's like a, when something is out of your control, this this physical hmm. manifestation of fear, which is anger, like takes hold. To me, that anxiety and fear are really... It feels anger. more visceral than that. Yeah, it's just like a uh, just a direct like when I think of anxiety, I think of like a low grade simmering fear or I mean, it could be very pointed I was as say, well. My anxiety is never low grade. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's a that's a whole conversation yeah. there. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely feel anxious about things. That's more like related to, oh, my God, how is this going to work out? What's going to happen? Yeah. You know, I'm worried about this. You know, it, I, I don't, I feel like that's more like a, uh, kind of a, a bad street to go down rather than just like something that just rears its head, like busting through the pavement of your, right. you know, right in front of you, like a dragon. Right. Um, 
Hmm. Plenty could be said about that as well. Yeah. About anxiety. I just wonder if it's not the same. I think maybe there might be the difference between the sort of conditioned feminine response to anxiety to 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 that those same emotions that you you talk about having rage your grandma or your mom would have this need to straighten or tidy or touch or clean like it Gosh, might be a know. socialization of just a different way of handling those emotions versus like being a guy and you know hulk smash is how we're taught to handle so many problems in life you know i would welcome people's comments on that it the misophonia thing is pretty widespread yeah a lot of people have this and we and not much is known about it huh well, you know shall I'll, we take a call i wish we could <laughs> you know <laughs> I, what i might do several people i sent out a survey a couple of weeks ago but like how how can we make the show better and there were lots of people who were like i, I have questions right you know they have questions for the guests and they want to like follow up so mm-hmm. uh, what i'll do is is i'll um i'll encourage people to contact us and we'll and we'll do a follow-up oh yeah and that's great because uh you know i would love to connect with listeners who are curious about stuff that we talk about and you know also i do healing work so yeah i'm available yeah and i do astrology as well i didn't know that oh yeah yeah and that can be really great for sorting some of this stuff out well man i usually wind these things up with 10 questions um that I came up with that's sort of similar to the actor studio questions, but they're my own questions. Okay. Um, um, and if you want, we can jump into that. Sure. Okay. What's your fondest memory that you have of a meal that you had? Oh goodness. What if nothing has come into mind? That's also okay. <laughs> yeah. Fondest memory of a meal. That's interesting. Uh, of the vegetarians I've interviewed, like Thor Harris, who's just absolutely ardently vegetarian and very, very serious about it, um, was like, I don't really have emotional attachments to food, which for me as a Southerner and, you know, as the guy that I am was like, really? Yeah. But some people don't. I will say Thanksgiving this year was really nice. Tell me about it. Yeah, I went over to Cal Clement's house, and okay. it, it was a vegan feast. Yeah. And and Cal was a, a wonderful host. There was a bunch of wonderful people there. I made a blueberry raspberry pie, and I made an apple pie. And I, I saved out the apple pie, so we the blueberry pie got destroyed, which yeah. I was really pleased that people thought it was a good pie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was lovely dinner. And um, later on, I ended up at Michael Wegner's which I've often done Thanksgiving at Michael's house. and He's always, also vegetarian, right? Uh, no. No? No, but I brought the, the apple pie. Yeah. And then the apple pie got destroyed at Michael's house. So I, I was like, yes. Perfect. But I also just like really love and relish having, um, having food with my kids. I love feeding my kids. Yeah. I love feeding them good food. Man, and it's not a great feeling. You yeah. put a meal in front of your kid and, and then... Yeah. You know you're doing it right when they go after the vegetables and fruit first. And you're like, yeah. oh, man, that's such a good feeling. Like, yeah, my kid eats fruit. I didn't eat fruit when I was her age. I didn't eat vegetables, you know? My kids love my smoothies that I make. Yeah. Yeah. And they're fresh, nuts and berries, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what did you use for a binder in the crust? If you're not using butter in a pie crust, you use vegetable shortening? Or? I, you could use that, or I used um, coconut oil. 
Oh, that would work perfectly. Yeah, after it cools, you know, it hardens. So yeah. you can totally, you know, mash it just how you need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, second question, what is the most frightened you've ever been? Oh, God. Uh, several things come to mind. Um, I almost fell off a cliff one time. Oh, shit. Thank God my mom never fell out about that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just when me and a couple of friends were like looking for caves on a bluff in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our flashlights started rumbling down the, the hill. We were running after it and slipped on the leaves. And I ended up literally hanging on a branch with my friend dangling on my leg. So we almost went over. We didn't. Thank God. Would have been about a 50 foot drop that's a long enough that's far enough to do some damage another time was we were touring in fuzzy sprouts and we had just crossed back into georgia from south carolina and some cars wiped out in front of us and it was uh well it was it was one like an suv that was pulling a trailer and several people died jesus we pulled over i said pull over pull over yeah. And we pulled over and I ran out just instinctively. Yeah. To try to help people. Yeah. This one man died in my hands. And then I spent the rest of the time with this woman who was paralyzed until the choppers got there. And that was, that one did a number on me. How old were you? 30s. Yeah. Yeah, the, people don't realize how much risk there is involved with just getting in a van every day. And a lot of times, the problem is is that you spend all your money on on, on good guitars and amplifiers and, and drums, and the van becomes a thing like, oh, we, we have to put it in something that will roll. Yeah. But does it stop well? I mean, you know, tower the headlights. Well, they come on, you know. I don't mind not being on the highway. In fact, I realized that I never have liked riding in cars yeah. my whole life. I get motion sick. I don't like it. I don't like the smell of it. Yeah. I don't like the road. I don't like the asphalt. Give me a bicycle, y'all. Yeah. I want to live where it's just bikes. Yeah. So I've also had plenty of experience with ghosts. Also, I've been attacked by ghosts. You got to tell me about that. You can't just say that. And not, That's... Yeah. Oh, it's a great deal of trauma that I'm still recovering from, from those experiences. Where were these ghosts? Um, it was in a particular place that I had lived. And, um, you know, footnotes to the story, I got it taken care of. Yeah. I did. How did, how does the, how did it manifest? I got the place itself? taken care of so that they were not there anymore. Yeah. But they were getting on me at night when I was sleeping and would kind of throttle me and choke me and I would be paralyzed. And there were, it was at least one and probably more that were in this place. And it was just terrifying. So how do you, how do you rid a space of ghosts? I eventually got it taken care of by, um, by hiring somebody Mm -hmm. who did it. Yeah. Yeah. And they did it from Dallas, Texas. Wow. Yeah. Three people got together in Dallas, Mm -hmm. somehow journeyed in the spirit world and took care of the space, got it done. Is that expensive? 
uh, it was worth a fortune. Yeah. I would have gladly paid probably five times what I did pay for it to get it done. Of course, you didn't, we didn't know if it was going to work. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's your recourse if, um, if uh, you find that this didn't work? They weren't going to charge me if it didn't work. Oh, well, that's fair. Yeah, but it did. Yeah. Is that a place here in Athens? Yeah. There have been a couple houses in Athens that have a reputation. Yeah, it's more than a couple. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What is the thing in your life that you've lost that you regret losing the most? Oh, man, I sold my 72 Gibson Les Paul. Should never have done that. Actually, I have a question specifically about musical instruments that's coming up. But uh, why did you sell your Les Paul? Because I had it was I had played Michael Guthrie's like '57 Les Paul or whatever his the you know, and it was like so much better than mine. Yeah, I was like, mine's shit. So I was like, sold it because I really needed some money to go on a vacation. Wasn't it a gold top? I it remember was, that guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You didn't sell it. Who'd you sell it to? I sold it to Midtown Music in Atlanta. Ugh. So you took a beating on it. I mean, yeah. That's a that's unfortunate. But I've been lucky in other ways. Where did you go on vacation? Went to Florida. Was it a good experience? Yeah. Okay. I needed it. I mean, experiences I are just more miss valuable it now. You know that somebody I saw this the other day on social media somewhere and it said, "Look around you. All that stuff used to be money." And all that money used to be time. That's a good one. That fucked me up, man. And I'm really sorry about losing a lot of relationships and yeah. people in my life, like friends moving away and just being through the whole love relationship now, like yeah, a number of times to put it mildly. And you know, I, my heart, my heart is hangs on to every one of those people. Yeah. Tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. Oh, God. I mean, pretty much every day. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about from a stranger, but, you know, things come my way that are of benefit to me all the time. Yeah. I mean, the universe conspires to help. You know, I think about people coming into my life like, you know, healers Mm -hmm. coming into my life or friends of friends getting in touch or, you know, connecting, connecting me with people that I needed. So, yeah. I don't know if I have a specific story. Yeah. As relates to that. I think every touring musician has a long list of, of things that they're grateful for just because like. How many times did someone say, oh, you can stay at my house? You know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, thousands. Yeah. Thousands of people I owe that debt to, you know, mm-hmm. letting me crash on their couch, their floor. And then sometimes they make breakfast, which is amazing. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> you guys didn't have to make pancakes. You know, it's amazing when that happens, you know, because that's like, you know, on tour, man, that's money. You know, you're either going to go out and buy breakfast or you're going to go hungry. And then someone, you know, gets up early and calls into work and makes food. It's like, thank you. Thank you so much. Like, this is what allows. Truly. Yeah. Me to play music. So. 
Um, what what's your favorite place to gig? Wow, do I have to pick a favorite? You don't have to. I mean, I mean, I don't do much touring anymore, right? Yeah. So it's like I kind of got off the road. I sort of hated the road. It's but not I'm, for everybody. Well, I mean, I did it for a long time, but it yeah. was messing with me, and I hated the gas. I hated yeah. the gasoline. I'm done. I'm like, if I could be done with gasoline tomorrow, and if the world could be done with oil, I would like push that button this right. second. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, like our careers as musicians heavily relies on touring. Yeah. So I faced, I faced a choice, you know, and the environmentalist in me won. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. However, you know, I'd still love to play. Yeah. So I'm not going to pick a favorite in Athens, dude. You know, it's like every right. place is different. I love I love all the places in Athens to play. Yeah. Everywhere from like Hendershots to Flickr, Caledonia, Georgia Theater, 40 Watt, Nowhere Bar. There's so Man. many places to play here. Yes. And yet when people call me from out of town, they're like, hey, where should my band play? I'm like, it's, you're not going to have an easy time breaking in in Athens. It's really hard. It's hard it to explain is. to people, but it's just really hard because there's eight million good bands that already live here. Yeah, and have existing relationships with Hendershots and Caledonia yep. and the Foundry, and and you're going to have to like find yourself sandwiched into that. You got to just make a deal with a local band and get in. You know. Yeah, or do house party. Yeah, I love house parties too. House parties are the best. Word. I saw your, some of my best memories of playing, to be honest, is oh, house yeah. parties. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the Wonderland Rangers at Hendershots recently, and I, I think it's the best thing you've done. With no slight to any of the other bands you've played with, but there's something special about this current Thank band. you so much. So good. Um, and Hendershots was a perfect venue for it. I can't wait to start us airing out some of the new material we re- we're working on, too. Yeah. I'm really excited. Well, I, I feel like I know the answer to this next question. Okay. Um, but I'm going to ask anyway. Yeah. Visa and income considerations aside, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? I'd split my time between Athens and Hawaii. That's been my experience. I've never been to Hawaii, weirdly. But I've had a past life there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And it's, so it speaks to me in this like DNA beyond dna level it's like it's just so yummy and great and i love all the elements you know there the water i love being able to say oh my god what are we going to do today okay well we go to the beach you can't say that in athens georgia that's true so you know I, i don't know if it's an endorsement of hawaii as a place to go it's not for everybody it's really far out there yeah I mean, there's no way to get there without burning a whole lot of fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, True there fact. is a way to get there, but you'd have to be a really good sailor. Yeah. And you'd have to have a very expensive boat. So that's beyond my means. Well, we're all trying to do better and use less, less, burn yeah. less fuels. So it's a consideration. I'm pretty, you know, as haphazard as my move to Athens was back in 1991. Then I kind of ended up here because I ran out of money once I got here and yeah. I stayed and stayed and I feel pretty lucky that I'm here. You came to visit Dave, right? No, I was, I came here alone. Oh, I had one acquaintance 
in Athens. And I just and then, showed up. And you reminded me that we met your first night here, right? Yeah, at the downstairs. Kristen Limbach from the Atlanta band Whores reminded me that when he was like just a, a kid, of course, I wasn't much older. I was probably 19. He was like 16. He came here on a sort of fact-finding mission with two of his buddies. And they were like, is this where we want to live? And so they asked me, like, what's Athens like as a place to live? Should we move here? And I was like, you should move here. You know, like, <laughs> I feel like the Chamber of Commerce should just hire me to go around and talk people into moving to Athens because I love it here. Did they move here? He he was in Florida and they he moved to Chapel Hill for school and then there was a terrible car accident. And the, that whole episode is really good. I can't remember the number episode off the top of my head, but he he, he got into a terrible car accident and then got strung out on opiates oh. and um, ended up kind of crashing in Atlanta for a long time and finally getting clean. It was, it's really, it was a hell of a conversation. I love that young people who are artistic or musical continue to move to Athens. I mean, I think that like, if we can get a, a handle on the skyrocketing cost of rent in Athens, um, we might be able to preserve it as a destination for creative young people. I hope so, buddy. Because New York... Austin, San Francisco, the places you used to go are now just so goddamn expensive that people just stay in places like Kalamazoo. Like Same thing's happening here. Yeah. I'm afraid I was sitting at the high-low the other day and um, kind of went off on this woman that I, that I was speaking to at the bar because she was going to move here from somewhere else and had a wad of cash or something at her disposal because she's you know, a cool person and you know a, a hard worker and mm -hmm. she was like where should i buy a house and i was like oh Austin. my word yeah <laughs> <laughs> i said you don't want to move here it sucks right <laughs> but i mean how many people do you know now and i mean it's it's all good people but like you know when wealthy people from california and new york are like oh my god i can afford a house in athens but I know, man. I mean, I've often thought like one of my dreams is to like find an old high school somewhere and turn it into affordable housing for artists. You Maybe know? that'll happen with the mall. Yeah, nothing else is going to happen with the mall these days. You know, they yeah. turn the old Walmart into a mega church, which to me is like swapping one form of consumerism <laughs> for another. You know, <laughs> I mean, Walmart is in its own way kind of a weird mega church for consumerism. So it doesn't really. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, well said. Um, do you have an ideal musical instrument? And if so, do you already own it or not? Yeah, I think I do. And yes, I do. Okay. I love my Fender Jazzmaster. Is that the one you... I think I've seen you play that guitar. Is it Sunburst? It's No, it's black. That's right. Oh, yeah. It, it has, it's black with yeah. stickers all over it. That's and right. It's, it's just a freaking rock machine. It's this tone machine. Those guitars have a unique thing with that longer scale, right? It's a, it's a 25 and a half scale. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I just love old Fenders, you know, mm -hmm. and it's a 65, 64, 65. Wow. And it happened to be a gift from my mom Oh, as she was, you know, in her last days. It was a wedding present from my mom. So it's like it has that emotional attachment as well. When we're done here, I'm going to show you the drum set that I worked on while my mom was in hospice. Yeah, nice. It was a Gretsch from the early 60s, and it needed mm. so much work. 
and I would, I would, I would come home from being down there and visiting my 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 mom as she was dying, and I would have all this nervous, restless energy and. This thing, yeah. I, I put six coats of lacquer on it and buffed every one of them out, and I, I, I did so much work on that set of drums, and it's, it, it's, that's just like every now and then I think, do I really need this drum kit? I've got seven drum sets now, or whatever number I'm on right now. I don't even pay attention because it's, 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 it's. I don't think it reflects well on me to have all this material stuff, you know. But at the same time, like each of these drum sets does a job. And that one's particularly resonant because it was the one I worked on when my mom was dying. Yeah. That's got some magic to it. Yeah. I should play it more. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you already answered this question. Is there a musical instrument that you've lost either to theft or pawn or, or, or shoving it along? It's that 72. It's that dang. Yeah. 71, 72. Believe it or not, I have an eBay search for like it. Yeah. I remember the serial number by heart. If I saw it, I would know it. <laughs> my Problem. dream is for it to somehow come back to me. You know, M Mike Mantioni had a Les Paul stolen. Ah, <laughs> that brutal. gold top, early 70s gold top stolen right off the stage in, in Savannah. <sighs> Big heroin culture in Savannah. And somebody yeah. walked in and picked up the guitar and walked out the back door with it. Like they had the whole thing planned. That's one of my worst fears. I I never let a guitar sit on stage. Yeah, never, never left a guitar in the van. No, always take it in. Do you have insurance? Yeah, I have Music Pro. I, I on all my stuff, especially even stuff Good that doesn't call. go out on tour. Yeah, because after the ceiling fell in at Chester Street Storage. <laughs> I lost a bunch of gear when the, the, the ceiling collapsed. All this water fell on my I equipment. I think I remember that. A bunch of people lost a lot more than I did. It was bad. Mike Turner from Happy Birthday to Me Records lost a ton oh, of inventory. right. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just completely like, this between you and your insurance company. Mm -hmm. It was the most foul thing. Mm -hmm. I pulled all my stuff out of there after that. I was like, I think we're done here. I think that's storage yeah. in general. Yeah. So, I mean, but... They had one job, you know, yeah. protect my stuff from the elements and somehow failed at that job and it wasn't their fault, according to their lawyers. So it was just like, apparently you needed a lesson in non-attachment. <laughs> if you could be a guest, if you could play one song with any performer that you love, what would the song be? and What would the performer be? Wow. Holy smokes. I mean, there's a world of possible answers there. And I'll even open it up even further to say that it doesn't have to be someone who's still alive. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Doing Helter Skelter with the Beatles would have been pretty good. You're the second person to say Helter Skelter with the Beatles. Really? But his he specified one thing. It would have to be Ringo, not Abe Laboreal, the amazing drummer who plays with Paul McCartney now. Yeah. I mean, just an, a free-for-all would be cool with that. Yeah. I mean, just about anything with Bowie. What's your favorite Golly. David Bowie song? Probably Heroes. That's a fucking good one. I love Fame the, is really good. When you, when you hear about how they staged microphones in the big room. Yeah. 
you know, and had each one set to, to, to open according to a certain volume level. So it was very intimate and immediate as long as Bowie was singing quietly on the first mic. But when, his, when he raised his volume, there were two other microphones staged with noise gates so yeah. that once the, the, the level of volume in a room hit a certain point, the second microphone was picking up so much of the room and then the louder the third mic was even further away and bigger room sound so when he goes for those big notes you get a bigger room sound but when he's singing quietly you get this intimate whispering in your ear sound which i think brian eno as a recording engineer is just brilliant can't argue with that man yeah tony visconti i think was the other engineer on that session too i recently i just facebooked this like last night actually because i was on my computer and ran across a mix that I had done, which was like the probably the 18th mix or something that I've tried to do a version of that song. And this one that I had completely forgotten that I had done this version in this mix and I listened to it and I was like, oh, wow, I might might be able to share that one. Yeah, it was it was all right enough that. Yeah. Can I t- my you, vocal take was OK. Could I take a run at mixing it? Would you Hell be okay yeah. with that? Yeah. Okay. Um, last question. All right. If you could um, to imagine a taxi that will go anywhere in time or space in your lifetime um, or beyond, and uh, you got into the taxi and said to the taxi driver, hey, man, uh, take me home. Where Where is home? That's funny you mentioned that, you know, because I often – have this feeling like I wish I could go back to certain times in my life. Yeah. And most of it is centered around, um, taking what I know now into the past to sort out issues that were happening that I didn't have a solution for then. Right. Like helping my folks. So I often think about that and I think about going back in time to high school and actually asking the girls I had a crush on do a date or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's just a whole bunch of like unrequited stuff that I never acted upon because I was too shy. Yeah. A lot of unfinished business. Yeah. But you know, I mean, and wouldn't we all like to time travel, you know, well, where, where, when you think of sort of the thoughts of home, is there a time in your life where you felt most realized or comfortable? Or my early childhood was very idyllic, yeah. And that would have been in Carlisle, Carlisle. Massachusetts. Yeah. We had an old farmhouse that was built in seventeen twenty nine. Wow. Yeah, and the community was was real sweet. It was just it was very it was diverse. There was a lot of Europeans there, and we had good friends, and they would come over and. Um, you know, we would go to their place and it just had a good feel. Of course, that was like the, the late sixties, early seventies. So it was just a different time. Yeah. Very different time. Was it that different though? Like every now and then I look at the news and I think, I feel like I'm watching the, the prelude to the Watergate hearings all over again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There are similarities, but yeah, I mean, I mean, if I say it's a different time, it's also, you know, before I grew up and became aware that there were bad things in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents knew, you yeah. know, but I, I, you know, they sheltered me from the horrors for a long time and, and until it started creeping in on me. 
you know, I guess that's how you lose your innocence. Right. But I can think back to a time that was just lovely. Yeah. And even like we would get two feet of snow and I would go out and play in the snow and dig tunnels in the snow. We didn't have that where I grew up. <laughs> I didn't care. I didn't care about the cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, well, man, this has been great. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to do this. You as well. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, you guys should definitely see Timmy Span, the Wonderland Rangers. They're like an unbelievable band. Man, thanks for the plug. Yeah, I, I just, I felt like this is, this is the 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 band that should have played at the Fillmore for our time you know mm. like it's warm and it's it's it, it, there's a lot of love in the performance and a lot of excitement and it. it was it's my favorite thing you've done and I really love it so I'm glad you're man doing can't it. thank you enough for that thank you man yeah and thanks for doing what you're doing here I I, I believe in you I started this because I felt like there was a need and then like you know, jump and the net will find you. Yeah. Well, now the net is just chasing me around. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like every time I have a moment of doubt, like I get another email, like this is so important to me and you saved my life. And I'm like, I it's, I'm so excited about how well it's going. And I'm all about it, man. And let's take it to the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And people are welcome to get in touch with me too. And if they want to, they can get, yeah. You know, if it's okay with you, they yeah, can of course. go through you, or you can find me on Facebook. It's easy to find on Facebook. Well, I will. I'll put contact information in the show notes. So it, Tim, Tim does massage and and other forms of healing. If if you're having struggles manifesting your, uh, reconciling your physical and your emotional life, I think that seeing Tim it could be a real boon to your sense of sense of well being and and ability to to kind of grow as a person. So you should definitely check into it. And I work at a distance as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't know how it works, but it does. Anyway, thanks, buddy. Love yeah, you. Thank you. Yeah. All right, that's it for episode 42. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you get a chance, check out the song Explications I'm doing. They come out on Wednesday, and I just go bit by bit through a song that I love, and I talk about why I love it. Uh, if you're into music at all, like obsessively like I am, I think you might enjoy it. Otherwise, you know, regular interview episodes are always going to come out at Saturday on midnight. And the um, eventually, of course, the song explications are going to move behind the paywall for people who pay the $10 a month Patreon fee to subscribe. If you want to check into that, go to patreon.com slash crash and ride. Um, there's a $5 level where you're just being a super nice person and throwing me 5 bucks a month so I can buy coffee. Um and then $10 a month gets you the subscription to the song explications, and it's it's a lot of fun. All right. Thanks to our erstwhile producer, Jake Kreger. Jake sends me show notes after every show to help me make the show better. So if it's better now than it was the first time you heard it, that's all on Jake. Thanks, Jake. Also, thanks to Gene Wolfolk and The Powder Room. All the music you hear on Crash and Riders from the band The Powder Room. You can hear more of their music on Bandcamp at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. I played with that band for a couple of years. The music at the sort of halftime break where I do the suicide prevention announcements, the music under that is me playing with the Powder Room, but everything else is from their first album, Curtains, which you can hear, like I said, on Bandcamp at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. They're a great band. Throw them a few bucks. Download those records. It's worth your time. Thanks also to Heil Audio for giving me such a great deal on those two PR40 microphones. If you're looking to upgrade the microphones for your podcast, you could do a lot worse than the Heil PR40. Back when I was a studio engineer, I used them all the time on snare drum, kick drum, and bass cabinet. Turns out they're a great broadcast microphone, too. Check out the Heil PR40. Okay, that's all for this week. So, 
Until we meet again, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Ask for help if you need it. Go see live music. Support your favorite band. And remember, loud guitars save lives.